Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word given to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a difficult word for us this morning. So, Father, we pray even now, even as our Lord has, seems to teach us here, we pray for ears to hear. Because we, we do not want to hear this. I, I don't want to hear it. And yet it is good for us. We don't want to hear it because something is wrong with us. And so we ask that even now, before we even enter into an understanding of your word, that you would begin to change our hearts through the spirit that dwells us, that we might hear and rejoice in even hard truths today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 1845, Sir John Franklin and 138 sailors left England to find the Northwest Passage across the Arctic into the Pacific Ocean. It is known throughout history as the Franklin Expedition. They set sail in a large three-masted ship with an auxiliary steam engine and brought along with them a 12-day supply of coal for a two- to three-year voyage. The historians say instead of making room for additional coal, they instead um, brought with them a 1,200-volume library a hand organ playing 50 tunes, China place settings for officers, cut glass wine goblets, and sterling silver flatware, which were of particular interest. The silver was of ornate Victorian design and richly patterned. Engraved on the handles were the individual officers' initials and family crests. The expedition carried no special clothing for the Arctic, only the uniforms of Her Majesty's Navy. Well, they set out uh, uh, sail amid enormous fanfare. Two months later, a whaling captain reported back to England that all the men were in high spirits. He would be the last European to see any of them alive. Twenty years of search parties recovered skeletons all over the frozen sea. 
The Inuit Eskimos explained they saw men pushing wooden boats across the ice. One boat was discovered with the frozen remains of 35 men. One, another group of frozen bodies were found clutching silver flatware. They found two skeletons in a boat that they had hauled 65 miles across the frozen sea, and they found with them tea, chocolate, and a great deal of table silver. Historians write that that one frozen officer was found alone in his uniform, trousers and jacket, a fine blue cloth edged with silk braid, with sleeves slashed and bearing the five covered buttons each. Over his uniform, the dead man wore a blue greatcoat with a black silk neckerchief. They conclude Sir John Franklin and 138 men perished because they underestimated the requirements of Arctic exploration. They ignorantly imagine a pleasure cruise amidst the comforts of their English officers' clubs. They exchange the necessities for luxuries, and their ignorance led to their death. Well, in our study of Luke's gospel, Jesus is at a place where, if you will, he has a rough voyage ahead of him. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's going there to die. And along with Jesus comes a massive crowd, as you know in verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him. So what does Jesus think about the massive crowds with him, the thousands of people? What does he think about his growing church, if you will? Well, he does not seem to be too excited about it. Rather, he seems to be concerned. He does not look at the crowd and see all these thousands of people and think, finally, I've made it, right? I, I've accomplished my goal. No, he, he looks at them, and in a sense, he says, this can't be right. Are you guys following the right guy? Do you realize who I am? In fact, he turns to them and says in verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. By the way, that, that is not how to grow a church. And yet Jesus says it anyways. The crowds get large and Jesus gets offensive. Because Jesus is not interested in crowds, is he? He's not interested in the quantity of people, but the quality of those who will follow him. He's interested in disciples. He's interested in commitment. And I think we need to hear this. I think we in particular as uh, affluent American Christians need to hear this because we create this language in our uh, kind of converted American gospel and we say things like, you know, we invite Jesus into our heart as if he's supposed to come and uh, provide for us inner peace and, and, you know, give me purpose in life and meet the needs that I have. That's how we talk about Jesus and talk about our relationship with him. And yet Jesus, he comes and he, rather than saying, I'm here to give you purpose, he actually begins to make these outrageous demands upon those who want to follow him. It'd be like if you invited a, a painter over to your house, perhaps, or an interior designer. And, you, you know, this room's a little drab because there's anything you could do for me. And he says, sure. And he goes out to his truck and he grabs his tools and he takes a saw and he starts sawing down one of your walls. And and you say, no, 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 excuse me, this is not what I want. And then he grabs the sledgehammer and starts swinging at your cabinets. And you're saying, no, 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 I just want a little touch up. And finally he leaves the house and you're relieved that he's finally gone until you hear the loud engine from outside. And you go outside and there's Jesus on a bulldozer, right? And he's, he's coming to push over part of your house. And, and you wanted a little tune-up. You wanted, you, you invited Jesus over to enhance your life. You invited Jesus over to fulfill your dreams. But he evidently has a totally different dream for you. 
I'm not here to enhance your life. He would say to you, I'm here to give you a totally new life. And some of you experienced this, haven't you? Some of you started to follow Jesus and thought it was going to turn out one way. And now you look back on your life and your life is radically different than you ever thought it would be. He's not in your life to fix up your cottage. He's in your life to turn your cottage into a castle, a home fit for a king. And, And you're not the king, by the way. He wants to transform your life. In fact, you just just read this book. Read it. And you find how many people that invited Jesus into their life to get a little life enhancement. And I think you'll probably come up empty. Rather, you see people who encounter this God and their lives are radically transformed, whether it's Peter or Paul or Abraham or Moses or Noah or Mary, right? He changes everything. He's not interested in rearranging the furniture. He's not interested in fulfilling your agenda. He's not interested in being a positive and encouraging presence in your life. He is here to take over. And he says, if you're going to come to me, you need to give up control to me. And I appreciate that he tells us this up front, doesn't he? It's not like fine print you read later on, right? He comes and does for his followers what Sir John Franklin did not do for his, right? He looks at the crowd and says, do you realize what I'm demanding of you? If you come with me, you have to hate your family. You have to carry your cross. You have to renounce all that you have. And if you don't, you cannot be my disciple. And so we consider this morning the the words of God, and I, and I want, you know, this is great crowd following him, and he turns to them, and he begins to address them. I, I wonder how many here are, to be perfectly honest, are like this great crowd. And we're kind of attached to Jesus, and we're kind of following after Jesus, and I wonder if he would even turn to us today and work in our own hearts. My prayer today is that, that, that we all, to some degree, would surrender more of our lives to the lordship of of Christ, and maybe for some of you would surrender your life to Him for the first time truly. We see, as you already could tell, I think this is a very difficult passage. In fact, Allegra and I were talking about this last night. I said, "Honey, you know what I'm preaching, and and you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not quite sure how to go about it." And, and she said, "Just go for it." <laughs> so, if you don't like this sermon, you blame it on her. Okay. Right? <laughs> if, uh, in fact, well, anyways. Um, <laughs> God, God, wants, God wants us to, if you will, uh, take our medicine today. He, it's, it may be bitter for you. I, I want to be upfront. It may be bitter. And yet it just might cure you. It begins by demanding that we love him more than anyone. A disciple loves Jesus more than anyone. Note verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, undoubtedly, hate is a very strong word, isn't it? It's, it's offensive at first glance, I think. And, and, and in fact, you, you, I don't know if you, of course, you've heard this. People come and say to you, you know, I, I don't know about Jesus being Lord and Savior, but I think he's a great teacher. Sometimes I wonder, have they ever even considered any of his teaching? Right? Next time someone says to you, I think Jesus is a great teacher, you open to Luke 14, 26 and ask him, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about when he says you have to hate your father and mother, your wife and your children, brothers and sisters and your own life? Now, now, of course, we have to understand what he means by hate, don't we? Right? But did Jesus hate his family? 
Of course not. In fact, all you have to do is look at him dying on the cross and there's Mary at his feet. And what is his concern? Not his own welfare, but hers. He needs to find out how she's going to be taken care of once he's dead. Right? In fact, I would suggest Jesus cannot demand that we honor our parents as he taught in Mark 7 and then tell us to hate them. And Jesus cannot take children into his arms and bless them as he does in Mark 10 and tell parents to hate them. That that he can't require his disciples to be reconciled to their brothers as he does in Matthew 5 and encourage us to hate them. He can't command us to love our enemies as he does in Luke 6 and call us to hate our friends. He can't explain to us that the world will know we are his disciples by our love for each other as he does in John 13 and then command for us to hate. I would suggest to you that no one taught or modeled love to greater degree than Jesus Christ. Right? So what does it mean when he says, hate your family? Well, this, this is hyperbole. This is exaggeration, a rhetorical device in which he's saying that no other love that you might have can come anywhere close to the love that you give to me. I demand a superior love from you. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, therefore, your love for him must be so great that it looks, makes all other loves look weak. Tepid, we might even call hatred. In fact, I think we're on on the right track because just turn over to Luke 16. Let me show you something. Luke 16 and verse 13, Jesus is talking about you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money, right? You, you, You can't have both masters. He says in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Why? For he will either hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, I don't think what Jesus is saying is if you love God and someone brings a dollar bill to you, you despise it, right? You hate it. Get that out of here. You rip it up and you burn it. No, what he's saying is that you love God so much that the influence and the pull of that dollar bill is weak upon you. That's what he means when he brings this love and hate together. I think perhaps the greatest picture of this is the, the picture of Jacob. Remember Jacob who had two wives, Rachel and Leah? And the Bible actually says that, uh, of, uh, according to J- for Jacob, he said that, that he loved Rachel and he hated Leah. Well, does that mean he was actively hostile to Leah? Does that mean he got, you know, get her out of my tent? I don't want to see her. I don't want to have anything to do with you. No, in Genesis 29, verse 30, it says Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. In other words, compared to his, his love for Rachel, his love, his attitude or love towards Leah, we might say it would look like hate. But it's not this active despising or opposition. And so what Jesus is telling us here is that that our love for him is in a different category, right? And he takes all the loves that you could possibly have. Your love for your parents. Your love for your spouse. Your love for your children. Your love for your brothers or your friends. And he groups all the loves that we might have. And he says, I want all those loves to, to pale in comparison with your love for me, right? If you want to be my disciple, your love for me must be, be more than any, your love for anything or anyone else. In other words, I want to be a Rachel in your life and I want everyone else to be Leah. See, Christ is not after your duty, is he? He's, he's not saying, I want your first priority. He's not saying, I want a religious attachment. He's not saying, I want you to come to church because that's simply what you do. He's saying, listen, I, I, I don't want you just to put me first. I want you to love me first, right? I want to have a superior love. Love me more than anything. And so my question for you is, is do you love Christ like this? Do you love him more than anyone? 
far more than anyone. Do you want Christ? Not do you come to church or read your Bible or hope your kids grow up to be moral. Right? He's asking you, do you love me first? Do you, do you live for me? Now, by the way, I think the best way for me to love my wife and to love my children is to love Christ more than them. In fact, I think the more I love Christ, the more loving I'll actually become for them, the better husband and father I will be. And yet Christ must come first. Christ must, must be our priority. And, and I, I think this is particularly challenging to us because so often people come to Christ. Why? Because they want to become a better husband. They want to become a better parent. And so I'll come to Christ and Christ will come and, and help me in my parenting. Christ will come and help me in my relationships. In other words, we want to use Christ to help us with some, someone else that we love more than Christ. And to be honest, it's a constant struggle in my life. Uh, I, I was talking to my community group this week how, um, you know, in all the activities my kids are involved in and in all the pulls that it has on Allegra and I, that, uh, you know, I, I've read the Bible and I, I can't find a single place where it says to parents, make sure your, your girls get to dance class, right? Or make sure your boys can swing a bat or make sure they get all A's. And and yet, what, <laughs> what do we do as parents? We, we take them to dance class. I, we go and dance cl- I, uh, class all the time and we take them to baseball practice and we... And, and, you know, sometimes we tell, well, you know, I'm proud of you because you can hit a ball. But do we open the Bible with them? Do we say, I'm proud of you because you memorized the passage of Scripture? It, it seems to me that, that if, if we're not careful, we will spend more time driving our kids around into their various activities in one day than we will spend in praying for them in an entire month. And what happens when we do this is that kids begin to learn that God doesn't come first. Right? Sports is first. School is first. And we subtly teach our kids for 15 years that, that you don't need God. What you need is to be able to swing a bat. You need to be able to study hard. And then, and then they grow up and, they, and then they really believe we don't need God. And we begin to panic as parents despite our whole life that we've taught them that God comes second to them. Now, I understand we want them, God to help them be sexually pure. We want God to help them have good morals. But the only role that we sometimes have for our kids and for the relationships in our life is we want God to enhance the life in which we have chosen for them. He comes and he's their insist, assistant, right? And, and what we're doing is we're using God to, to get what, what is ultimate for us, whether it's well-adjusted kids or a happy marriage or, or a career. We're constantly using God and say, this is what I want. Help me to get it. And Jesus comes and says, I'm not going to be used by you. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here to fulfill your dreams. I'm here to give you totally new dreams. You must come to me for me. You must come to me because you delight in me. And my question for you parents and husbands and wives and all the rest, do you love, love Jesus more than your kids? Do you love Jesus more than your spouse? Because if you do not, you cannot be his disciple as we see very clearly. I think of a great hero of mine named John Bunyan. He was in prison in England for preaching. It was against the law to preach unless you were licensed by the government. He did not have the license, and so they put him in prison, leaving his wife Elizabeth and his four daughters there to take care of themselves. In a very difficult time for people to take care of themselves, his youngest daughter was blind and they lived in extreme poverty for the next 12 years. 
And you know what's interesting about Bunyan's story is that Bunyan was in prison for 12 years, but he held the key to his prison door. He could have walked out on any day and any moment that he chose. All he had to do is say, I won't preach anymore. You know what Bunyan said? He said, I can make you this promise. If I am free today, I will preach tomorrow. And yet, you think, well, that's kind of cold. I mean, don't you understand the the torture you're putting your children through? Well, listen to what he says about his his children. He says, the parting, when they, they would come to visit him, then they leave him in prison. He says, the parting of my wife and poor children have often been to me in the place of a, as the pulling of flesh from my bones. I am often brought to mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was to meet that I am taken from them, especially my poor blind child. Oh, the thoughts of the hardships I thought my blind one might endure would break me to pieces. He continues by saying, I am like a man pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. Yet I thought, I must do it. I must do it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You must love Jesus more than anyone. Secondly, a disciple surrenders his life to Jesus. At the end of verse 26, he says, you, you must hate even your own life. He, I think he then elaborates what that looks like in verse 27 when he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He says, you have to carry your cross. Now, please understand, cross back then was not a piece of jewelry. It, it was a vulgar term. The crowd would have gasped. When they heard him even mention it, it was the capital punishment that the foreign occupier would use on those they first wanted to humiliate and torture. And we have nothing even closely parallel to it. But can you imagine one of our political leaders saying, you know, join our cause and, and follow me and, and join the political revolution, right? Put a noose around your neck and off we go. Strap yourself to the electric chair and let's go. That's outrageous. You would think, what what in the world's wrong with this person? That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's jarring. In fact, if you saw a man carrying the cross, you know what you're watching. You're watching their last act, a public humiliation on the way to an excruciating death. No one, no one ever carried a cross and then halfway through said, you know, this really isn't working out for me. I'd prefer someone else to have this. I'm going to take this off. Right? You see, if, if you're carrying a cross, you, you, <laughs> your desires no longer matter. Your plans, your dreams, you're, you're under arrest. If you're carrying the cross, you're under arrest. A disciple, in other words, a disciple is no longer his own. It's, it's no longer about you. It's no longer about your plans. Now, the cross means that you're going to experience things in your Christian life that you do not want to experience. You're going to perhaps go places you don't want to go. You're going to be required to say things you'd rather not say. And it will bring suffering in your life. Listen, most people think you come to Christ and things get easy. Right? And certainly some things do get easy. But there's hardship that comes. Jesus says, I'm not here to give you ease. I'm here to give you a cross. And so the question that I think he has for us is, will we willingly embrace suffering for the cause of Christ? That might be disrespected at school, right? That might be disowned by your family. 
That might be uh, rejected by a community or your work. For many people today, it means death. As we just saw, 12 Christians were crucified in ISIS-controlled Syria. So they would not reconvert back to Islam. It means loving your neighbor when you don't want to. It means forgiving when you'd rather be bitter. It means uh, being hated and mocked by this world. It means denying yourself whatever he calls you to deny yourself. It means enduring suffering when he calls you to do it, right? And you know why this happens to us? Not because Jesus likes suffering, but where's Jesus going? He's going to the cross. How was Jesus treated? He was rejected by this world of sin. And if you're going to follow him, right, what's going to happen to you? If you're going to be like him, you're going to encounter as many of the same things in which he encountered. And if you're not, Jesus says, you're not willing to, you just better, better for you to just go home. That's what he's doing to the crowds. He said, I'm not interested in self-serving followers. Now, again, this is, I think, a violation of everything we kind of are taught from the very young, right? Isn't life about self-fulfillment? Isn't life about the pursuit of happiness, right? How many people have asked, doesn't God want me to be happy? I, I, don't, I don't know, maybe. But I, again, I've read the Bible. I've never found it anywhere that God says, you know, I just, really, I just really want you to be happy. He wants us to have joy. He commands for us to have joy. Obedient, strong, worshiping, um, indomitable joy, right? He wants us. But I don't know any place where God says, you know, I'm here to be a positive and encouraging role in your life. I'm here to help you in your pursuit of happiness. I do know a place where he says, I want you to carry the instrument of death upon your shoulders. In fact, I know a number of places where he says that. In other words, friends, when we come to Jesus, we don't get a genie in the bottle. We get a cross upon our back. That's what we do. It says right here, right? You can't try to fit him in your life. He becomes your life. And I don't, do you feel the weight of the cross upon you? Have you felt that way? Maybe you feel the weight when you want to be in a relationship with a non-Christian. And you very clearly see the Bible forbids that. And you have to decide whether I go after that boy or girl or will I, will I go after Jesus. Maybe you felt the weight when, when you want to be quiet and Jesus says, no, you have to speak up even if you look like a fool. Maybe you felt the weight when you want to accumulate and Jesus says, no, I want you to go without. I want you to sacrifice so the nations can hear and people can go. Maybe you felt the weight when you want to uh, pursue sexual immorality and Jesus says, no, you don't, you don't get to look at those things and you don't get to think of those thoughts. See, to carry your cross, you know, to carry your cross means it's better to die than to live for something else other than Jesus. I'd rather die than give my life to someone or something other than Christ. Your Christianity includes hardship. And if you can't identify the hardship in your Christian life, you're not doing it right. It involves suffering. There must be something hard, self-denying about it. He says, unless you surrender your life, unless you carry my cross, you can't be my disciple. And so Jesus is teaching this very hard, and, and we're all very uncomfortable right now, I can tell. And, and, and he, he stops. Maybe he senses it. And he says, okay, let's just, let's just big parentheses right here in the middle. And he says, okay, now that you understand the cost, let's, let's count them a little bit. Let's think about this for a minute. And, and you know by now that Jesus is not a very good salesman, right? 
He, he says, listen, I'm God. I want you to follow me. And if you're going to follow me, people are going to hate you and you, you might die. And so you probably should think about this before you do so. I, I'm not interested in a casual decision. You should count the cost. As we see in verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the costs, whether he has enough to complete it, right? So you only start a building project if you have enough money to finish it. There'd be no reason to start it unless you can complete it, right? Because the half-finished tower is pointless. It's useless. In fact, it's worse than useless because you look in verse 29 and he says, otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish, right? So your half-built building is simply a monument to your folly, right? Everybody walks by it and they laugh at you and think, what a fool. Who would have done this unless they could finish it? And Jesus says, listen, don't make the same mistake with me. Don't start with me if you can't finish with me. Before you decide to come with me, sit down and decide whether you can pay the cost in which I'm demanding you. Right? This is where the Franklin expedition went way wrong. They never calculated the cost. And it was folly, right? And then he gives us another example. Note verse 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes at him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Right, so, so the king wants to go to war, he assembles his army, and he, and he gathers his generals together, and they begin to deliberate about the war strategy, and he says, okay, what's the strategy? And his generals say, surrender is the strategy. Okay. What do you mean surrender? Well, you don't, we don't have enough men. We can't win this. And so it's pointless to fight a fight you cannot win. It's better just to send, uh, seek terms of mercy, seek terms of surrender. Don't, don't go fight this battle. Right? In, in other words, Figure out if you could do this before, before you actually do it. I remember when I was in high school. Um, uh, you may find this hard to believe. I kind of find it hard to believe, but it's true. Um, I used to want to be a Marine. Um, I don't know. Any Marines here? There's a Marine. I don't know. There's a couple more about, around here. I mean, Marine, I don't know. There's just something about Marines with the, the, the commercials. Remember the commercials? The few, the proud, and... And they got the uniforms with the brass buttons and the swords. And I just thought it was so cool. And they got the, the, the Semper Fi and the Huyas and, and just everything about the Marines was awesome. The recruiters would come to, I don't know if they still do, they're allowed. They would come to high school campus and begin to recruit you in, in high school. And, and, and it was just the very, I mean, just kind of cool guy. I, no offense to the Navy guys, but with the hanky and the white outfit and wasn't just kind of, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really exciting to me. Um, so, but the Marines, right? I'm sure the Navy, I mean, it's a good uniform. Don't get me wrong, but the, but the Marines were awesome. Okay, and so you want to be a Marine. I wanted to be a Marine. But then you, you look a little bit farther. I actually talked to a Marine recruiter. I actually went to the recruiting office and found out a little bit more what it's like. And uh, I found out there's a lot of running. Right? And, then, and then there's the push-ups. And then there's the sergeant who yells at you if your shoes are not shiny enough. And, and then there's the slop that they feed you in the mess line. right? And then the bathroom accommodations were not very nice. And uh, the lack of freedom. And, and you begin to think about what, what all of it costs. And, and it, it, it costs seems... It was a big commitment. 
And so what if I, I, you know, I'm meeting with this recruiter and say, you know, I'm really interested in this, but do you got like a plan B, right? Where you don't do all the running and you got like your own private room, but you still get the sword and the cool hat. And if I did that, what what would he say? He said, what are you talking about? We're the Marines. You don't, you don't dictate your terms. You come on our terms. You don't get to decide, I'll take this, but not that. And I'll do this, but not this over there. No, once you're in, we own you. How many people do that with God? Do you got like a plan B? Where, you know, I could maybe, I'll go to church every once in a while, but come on, the the, the tithe, that's ridiculous. Who does that? You know, the, the purity or the evangelism or... The sacrifice, you know, is there some way that we could kind of work this out? And what does God say? No, I'm God. There's no plan B. You don't, you don't come on your terms. You don't dictate. We don't negotiate here, you know, what will work for you and what will work for we. And we meet in a middle where we all agree. No, you do what I say. You go where I send. You say what I tell you to send. Your life is over when you're with me. I own you. That's the cost. So that should be clear. Let's put it on the table. That's what God demands. Total ownership. But with a price. This is what God calls for us. And yet we constantly want to come on our own terms. In fact, I'm, I'm getting ready uh, for the, the persecu- day, of pers- day of prayer for the persecuted church on November 6th. And I've been reading a lot of what's going on in this past year in the persecuted countries. And, um, you, you read about um, people in Pakistan who decide to get baptized. They count the cost. They get baptized. You know what happens? They lose their family. Family just shuns them, if not worse. They once worked in the family business. And they no longer get to work in the family business. And the only way they survive now is if the church actually be- becomes the church. Right? They, they get baptized. You know, quite often in these persecuted countries, they don't care if you follow, say you're a Christian. But once you get baptized, that's kind of the line in the sand. That's when all the persecution starts. And, and when, they, when these people go and they get baptized, they say, I've counted the cost. I've signed up. I'm dying to myself in order to live for Christ no matter what. And yet, what do, what do we do in America? Oh, ba- I mean, baptism, you've got to get in front of people. And, and then there's the water and the wetness, and that's all awkward. And maybe you have to say something. And I, I don't think so. I'm not, you know, I'll do this over there, but I'm not that. And and Jesus, you know what Jesus is saying? Let's be clear. He's saying, don't even start unless you're going to finish. I mean, don't even start unless you're going to take the first step. Don't even start unless you go all the way. I mean, could you imagine if Jesus was here? Let me just say he was here in Hamilton. And we're all following him around town, and and he's healing people. Right? And... (laughs) And, and, and the, the authorities show up and he's rebuking the authorities and they walk away all confused and not sure what to do with him. And then we go down to the cemetery and there's a funeral and he walks up to a casket and throws it open and puts his hands on someone. The boy gets up and goes back to his mom and, and we're all following. What are we thinking? We're thinking, this is amazing. I mean, this is incredible. And we're thinking, I, I believe you're the son of God. I, I believe you are. I mean, how else could you do this? We want to follow you. And he turns to us and says, okay, you want to follow me? You need to understand, if you follow me, you have to hate everyone compared to your love for me. 
that you have to put a cross upon your You're going to suffer. In fact, you know what I'm doing? I'm, I'm headed to D.C. and they're going to kill me. And I don't, I don't know what's... I don't know what they're going to do to my followers. You coming? You coming with me? And maybe some of us think, well, I didn't, I didn't know it was going to be. I mean, it's a stream, isn't it? I thought I'd get some free bread or something and watch, watch, watch the show. But I, I didn't know it's going to, I didn't know what it's going to cost so much. And Jesus says, if, if you're not willing to go with me, it's just better that you go home. Live your life. Don't follow me halfway. Now, please understand, it's not that Jesus doesn't care. Please wait till we get to Luke 15. You'll see how much he cares. It's, his care is explosive. His love is, is, is conquering of our sin. But you need to know the cost because there's a lot of nominal Christianity around, isn't there? There are Christians in name only, no transformation, no love, no worship, no obedience. And Jesus says, count the cost first. Well, then he gives us a third cost, if you will. He says, a disciple must give up everything to Jesus, verse 33. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He says, you want to be my disciple, you have to be willing to give up everything to me. Now, I don't think this is sell everything or give away everything, though it might be. But it's at the very least give up control over everything in your life. So Christian, does Christ have access to everything, to your things? Have you, have you ever sacrificed for the kingdom of God? How are you sacrificing? Where are you giving up for Christ? Right? Because a disciple of Jesus means you are attached to him and not to your possessions. You have to give up, be willing to give up everything. And you say, well, that sounds like a life of sadness. And if you think that's a life of sadness, the sacrifice for, for Christ, I, I was just, you don't, you don't really know what, where joy comes from. I've had the great privilege to travel around this world in the context of missions. And some, in fact, some of you have been to Ghana. Um, and, and you see the people have much, much less than you. And yet they have much, much more than you, namely joy. As they're loading up in buses to come hear people teach them about Jesus. And there's times of spontaneous singing. And there's just joy radiates from them. They may not have all the things that we have. But they have something that I would give up all that stuff for. And it's this joy and delight. So it's not calling for this life of misery. In fact, even if he asks you to give up everything for him, you know what? One day you're going... Remember last week? You're going to walk into that banquet. You're going to walk into that new heaven and that new earth and live forever with him. And I'll tell you, if Jesus says, give up everything for me and you gain Jesus, that's a deal you should take every time. In fact, if you have everything in this world and not Christ, you have lost everything. What is it? A profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul. And so you better open your hands and say, Jesus, take what you will. I freely give it because I want you more than anything. You use my time. You use my talents. You use my, my family. You use my uh, connections. You use my job and my joy and my health and use it all for your honor. Because I want to follow you. You see, Christ doesn't want fans. He doesn't want people cheering, yay, yay, Jesus. He wants followers. He wants people who don't think, well, yeah, Jesus does cool things and I want to be around him. He helps me out of jams. No, he wants followers. In fact, he, he tells us as much in verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? And he uses this metaphor. He says, okay, well, you know, salt's very useful, he says. As long as what? As long as it's salty. 
but, but if salt loses its saltiness, it's useless, right? What do you do with saltless salt, right? In fact, he says, I can't even throw it on the dirt. What do you do with it? Look in verse 35. It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile, right? It, 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 you, you have saltless salt. You can't even throw it on manure. It's like you could use right, manure, but if you put salt, saltless salt is useless, and so what he's saying is followers are great. I like followers as long as they're following. But if you're unwilling to follow me, if you're a non-following follower, you're like saltless salt. You're useless for my kingdom. He says, I don't, I don't even know where to put you. Right? You go, if you're a, a, a non-following follower of Christ and you're standing on a bunch of manure, Jesus says, comes to you and says, hey, get off that. You're ruining the manure. Right? Get, get off the dirt. You're ruining dirt. Right? I would like to see that as a Hallmark card. Nominal Christians, you ruin poop or something like that, okay? Right? I mean, that's what he's saying. Yeah, listen, I can't even put you on the ground. I don't know where to put you. It's, it's utterly useless. So just, just don't be a warm body in a church. There's no point, Jesus says. Don't just don't be a guy in a crowd if there's... No commitment. If you're not going to live it out, if you don't season your work and your life and you don't serve and you, you bail out when things get hard, you say, well, I didn't know I had to, you know, I didn't, I didn't know I had to re- remain married to her because that got real bad quick and I, I just want out. And Jesus says, no, that's not the type of people I'm calling you to be. I don't want crowds. I don't want fans. I want followers. And then he says there, right in the end of verse 35, he who has ears, let him hear. In other words, a lot of people have heard this message, and I trust even this morning. Um, they don't want to hear this. I, and I thought about it. I've been praying about this, and I, you know, I, for some of you, this may be the last time you ever come to Hamilton Baptist Church. I don't know. So this, this is too much. This is, this is too extreme. But for some of you, maybe, maybe it's like, maybe some of you are thinking, finally, I just want to get rid of this hypocritical, fake Christianity and like, let's, let's find the real thing. Let's be the real deal who are all in. This is hard. But, but as we end our time this morning, I, would, I just want to remind you two things of, of what it means to be a disciple. Please understand, when you look at these demands, you need to understand that discipleship is a journey. It's a journey. Now, there is always a decisive moment in which you decide to follow Christ. Right? You, you drop the maybes, you drop the ifs, you say, I'm in. But that just starts the journey. Right? You following me? That just starts the process. It's a journey. And you're not going to have it all together at the very beginning. You're going to grow into these commitments, aren't you? I mean, think of Peter, for instance. Did Peter carry his cross? I could show you a time when he dropped it as quick as he could and scared from a schoolgirl and off he ran. And yet what? He, he followed Christ. And so this is something that we're going to work out and we grow in. This is these commitments that we begin to learn to do as we follow Jesus. The second thing I want you to know about discipleship is that no matter how hard it is, it is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And if he demands that you love him above all, please understand he only does that after he has set his love upon you. He loved you first, friends. In fact, his love far exceeds any love that you will ever give him. And if he demands you renounce all that you have, please understand it's only after he renounced all that he had for you. And by the way, he had a lot more than you ever will. 
He had the glories of heaven. He had the worship of angels. He had the fellowship of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he entered this sin-stained world for you. He gave it up all for you. And if he demands you carry your cross, it is only after he carried his cross for you that he might save you, that he might bring you into a relationship with the Father. So he tells us to count the cost. But please understand, he only does so after he counted the cost to bring you into this relationship with him, to pay all of your sin debt, and he was willing to pay the cost. And to the degree in which you dwell on what Jesus has done for you, and the love that he has for you, and the grace in which he has given you, the the demands that he makes will not feel like burdens, but opportunities to draw closer to him who has captured your heart. It won't feel much like sacrifice at all, right? Because you gain Christ. I, I, was, I was married on July 26, 1997. We had a, we had a lot, of, lot of friends. It was a huge wedding. We had a lot of people from college uh, down at that wedding. And um, I, I probably never told you this. Probably not a good time to tell you it now, but here goes. Um, right? there, there were... There were girls at that wedding that, listen, my relationship with Allegra, let me back up. My relationship with Allegra, our five years of dating, wasn't always the most stable time. Would you agree with that? Yeah, all right, okay, we're on the same page, okay, good. Um, And so there were girls at the wedding that I, at one time previous years before, thought, well, if it doesn't work out with Allegra, then, you know, I, I might have a chance with her. Or, you know, have a chance with her or a chance with her. And so there I am at the wedding uh, 19 years ago, and... And, and Allegra, Allegra came down the aisle and stood before me in, in just radiant white. And, and do, you think, do you think I was thinking at that time, wow, man, I'm, I'm, losing, I'm losing her over there. Or, you know, I'll never have a chance with her now. No, of course not. I was thinking, are you, are you really here? Now, she was an hour late, so I was freaking out, okay? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> none, none were as good as me, evidently. So, uh, so, so I, I'm, I'm here. I'm here with Allegra, thinking. I, I'm not thinking about what I lose. I think about what I've gained. And I say, I'll give it all up for her. So Christ comes and say, "Listen, you want to come with me? This is what you have to lose. But you know what you get." You get me, Jesus says. And to the degree in which we know what Jesus has done for us, to the degree in which we say, I will gladly make that deal. In fact, it doesn't feel like much of a burden at all because I get Jesus. And so what, what, I mean, what now, right? You know, my, my hope for you, and I'm just going to give you a moment as we end our time. I, I think God wants us to respond to this. And, and you have a little note sheet there. Maybe there's a place where you can write. Is there, maybe God's already laying this on the heart, just one practical step in which you can begin to, to follow Christ more closely or obey him more sacrificially. What, what's one part of your life that you could surrender to him more com- completely? Because I think a lot of times we think, well, okay, that's interesting. I have a lot to think about. I'll think about it later. And we just don't. And I wonder even now is, is, is you could just put that down and just, well, God, I want, I'm, I, want, I want to give you this. I want to give it to you gladly because I love you. And maybe for some of you, you're, you're realizing that for the first time that, that now that you're seeing this more clearly, you're saying, well, maybe I, I don't have a relationship with Jesus at all. 
I've just been one of these followers, these fans, not a follower, not a real Christian, a fake Christian, a Christian in name only. I've never given my life to him. And maybe, maybe that, that you're right now, even this sermon, counting the cost and say, yeah, it's worth it. I want to surrender. Maybe, maybe you would even pray after me right now, even in your heart, this very moment, that you would pray to God these words, God, I, I've seen the costs. I'm willing to pay them because I want you. He would pray, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe He died to pay the penalty for my sin. I believe He rose from the dead three days later. And now I surrender all to Him. Right? If you, if you pray that prayer and you mean it, you, you've entered into this relationship, you made that decisive step. He wants you to come and to follow Him, right? He, he wants you to give it up, give up everything for Him because of what you gain. I mean, we're, we're, the, we're the whole uh, realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my love, my life, my all. Our Father, we're thankful for the Lord. We're thankful for His integrity, His honesty to tell us what it cost. That we don't just get to invite you into our life to fix our problems and help us out of jams. When we enter into a relationship with you, we don't dictate the terms. We come and surrender everything. You demand our love, our life, our all. And we, as the followers of Christ, are glad to pay it because of what we gain. Help us to be more faithful in our discipleship. There are areas of my life that I need to surrender. There are areas of my brothers' and sisters' lives that they need to surrender over to you. Help us to recognize the gain, the intimacy, the closeness, the delight in your presence far exceeds whatever sacrifice we might make. It's a work in our hearts. We pray for our friends here this morning that are not followers of Christ. Maybe they know about Christ. Maybe they have some beliefs about Christ, but they know in their heart this very moment that they are not truly yours. They're living for themselves, their own dreams, their own plans, their own ambitions. They have yet to surrender all to you. In your kindness and grace to them, call them to yourself that they might know you through Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.